Mojo Radio Show News. I say to you, you gotta have Mojo, baby. Yeah. News with a difference. Cheating is on the rise in the workplace, and it's a good thing. Who said you had to have all the ideas? No one person has a monopoly on all the world's great ideas. In fact, sometimes the most unlikely people can come up with the goods, and often that's because they don't feel restricted to the usual norms. Ask your partner, friends or family. Start verbalising or get the ball rolling in an open forum. The seed of an idea might come from your discussion and give you the jumpstart you need. Remember, it's always easy to get too close to a project, so putting a fresh head onto the idea might be just what's required. So it's not really cheating. It's just making the most of all available resources. Mind you, Gordon Gecko did say, cheating is good, cheating is right, cheating works. Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hitting the download button. Thank you, AP, for that sterling introduction. Thank you, Gary. On with the show. Nice to have you in the studio, buddy. We are continuing on our theme in January. We have gone mind. We've talked about the spirit last week with the incredible Jake Bailey. And this week, we're heading into the body, and we have got a special guest all the way from New York to talk to us about everything body-related, fitness, movement, and health. Before we do that, uh, Robbo, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Talking about last week's show, I bumped into someone who listens to our show regularly during the week, and they were telling me that... um they thought that last week's show was one of the most inspirational ones they've heard us do. So that was a nice piece of feedback. He's an inspirational guy. I mean, it was an gr- amazing backstory with what he's been through. I think now that he's reflected upon his journey and how he can then share with people, I think makes it quite powerful. So if you haven't heard of folks, highly recommend go back to last week's episode, Jake Bailey, Cancer Survivor. And this guy will set you up for the year ahead if you think your day has gone to crap. Have a listen to that one. <laughs> yeah, tell you what, it's certainly an eye opener, isn't it? The Mojo Radio Show. Jesse, paint your pictures about how it's gonna be. By now I should know better. Your dreams are never free. Now, this guest came to me via the interwebs where I read a number of blogs by Jesse Barton, and I really like Jesse's style of writing. It was on Mind Body Green. I'll put a link to them in the show notes. But I loved Jessie's writing. I loved her attitude towards wellness, fitness and health. And the nice thing I think about this interview is you're going to find it's very accessible for all of us to get moving to make sure that 2017 is an absolute cracker. So all the way from New York, Jesse Barton, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. And we should also say happy birthday. Ah, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. This is a great way to spend my birthday. So um, always good to be 21 again, isn't it? Ah, <laughs> to start us off, when, when people ask you, what do you do? Uh, what do you normally reply, Jesse? Yeah, that's a complicated question. Um, I do a little bit of everything. I have my master's in psychology, um, but my main source of income and what brings me the most fulfillment is personal training. So I do personal training. I'm a Wilhelmina fitness model um, and I write and I'm trying to do more writing in the in the past year and more for the future. So I, I do some wellness blogging for Mind Body Green and some other avenues. And um, 
yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up in a nutshell. And when you're doing your personal training, Jesse, who would be the sort of people you'd be mostly working with? Um, it varies. Uh, my primary clientele these days are women, typically, you know, I would say late 20s to early 40s. Um, I've had some guys, but in my experience, women tend to prefer to work out with women and men with the men. So um, that's kind of my demographic right now, at least. And you're based in New Jersey, is that right? Just near New York? Yeah, exactly. I'm right over the Hudson River in Jersey City. So my commute into the city is, you know, 20, 25 minutes. Wow. I think you're our first guest ever from New York. Oh, no way. Really? Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> One of my favorite places nice. on the planet. Now, you were in a corporate job and you decided to change to fitness. And this is only sort of a recent thing, I guess. Why? Why the change for you? Yes. Um, so I was working, as I mentioned, I got my master's in psychology and I was working um, in a for-profit recovery company as a case manager um, in Manhattan. And of course, the work was very challenging, um, but I also, the environment was not that great. And I while I love working with the clients, um, I've kind of always done fitness and one degree or another. And I was kind of, kind of finding myself very burnt out by the work. Um, and I was simultaneously kind of starting to train clients on my own. And I was also trying to get, um, my, my client, my recovery clients involved in fitness. And I was finding whenever I would lead a boot camp with them, I got so much more enjoyment out of that and was left far less strained than say doing like a 45 minute therapy session. Um, and also, and, and I find that that kind of work is very beneficial for the client as well, for anybody who's suffering from, um, alcoholism or addiction or eating disorders. Um, you know, there's a lot of research to support the benefit of regular exercise. So I myself was finding myself very drained and, um, really wanted to kind of work more in the solution than in the problem. And so kind of along the way, I got my certification in PT and then eventually totally transferred out and could not be happier with that decision. What was, the, do you remember the moment what was the actual catalyst where you made that decision? I mean, and the reason I asked the question, Jess, is because we, we do a segment on the show called Getting After It and we talk to people who have made the decision to start something new and rather just talk about it, think about it, they're actually doing it. And this is kind of an example of that. I'm always curious about the moment where it went from being sort of a side hustle into being, you know what, I'm all in on this. Do you remember that moment that you said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this? I think for me, it was a series of moments. Um, it, I definitely knew that once I, I officially finished grad school, I really wanted to kind of devote more time into the fitness realm, but I didn't know at the, at that time exactly what it looked like. But each time I, like I said, I would lead a boot camp or I would lead a group run with my, my recovery clients that just that, that source of joy and that sense of accomplishment and seeing the smiles on their faces and seeing that they, they really felt better at least temporarily little by little, the combination of all of those times kind of made me be like, you know what, I got to get out of this. Um, and then I, so I got married in May and I took two weeks holiday for my honeymoon. And 
at some point during that time, and my, my former boss would hate to hear this, but at some point <laughs> during that time, I realized that I needed to kind of give my my notice when I got back. Um, I kind of, sometimes when we're separated from the thing that uh, really kind of brings us down, it kind of brings a lot of clarity. And for me, uh, in Costa Rica, laying on the beach and surfing, I kind of realized that I needed more of that in my life. Um, and I wanted to help clients in that way rather than the way that I was doing. Um you know, because before I entered that career, I, I would typically identify myself as pretty happy, joyous and free. And then that career kind of brought me to my knees several times. And, and I was constantly anxious and just being away from that environment for an extended period of time may, really made me realize like, OK, I need to get out of this not only for my own health, but for the sake of others, too. Do you think sometimes people are in that situation and they're so close to it, they actually don't know what it feels like to feel good? Who are kind of in a job that's unfulfilling? Yeah, so when you say they feel anxiety or in some cases maybe depressed or they feel tired or burnt out, do you think sometimes people are so used to that that they think that's just normal? Absolutely. I think that becomes their baseline and they kind of start operating from that place, not realizing that there's a whole nother world out there, a whole nother source of happiness. Absolutely. Um, I've definitely felt that in my own life um, from time to time, uh, not realizing that I was kind of trapped in it. There were whole other layers of happiness that I could experience, certainly. So and I think kind of prior to that job, I was sort of living in that area. And then with that job, I was like, oh, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right. This isn't me. This is like a, a costume that I'm putting on every day. So I needed to kind of get back to that place where I felt happy, but was still, um, you know, to be honest, making a living. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I see it all the time in people who are kind of stuck in these mundane jobs that don't totally fulfill them. And I think they try to fill that void by, you know, kind of external things, purchasing things or, you know, just going out and, and drinking a lot or eating a lot. Yeah, I think we see it a lot. And maybe particularly in, in American culture where it's, it's so the push is to go, 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 go. Um, yeah, I think that's very common. Well, I don't think it's just America. I'm <laughs> pretty sure we see a lot of that here too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, absolutely. Something you wrote about, Jesse, was that when you started your own gig, you actually lost a tremendous amount of weight that started to trouble you. Yeah. And this, this was as a personal trainer. Um, talk us through that. How did that happen? Yeah, that's – and wow, I'm impressed. You really went deep there. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so – that was a very interesting experience for me and kind of, I'm, I think I'm kind of on the other side of that, but, um, to go into my own history a little bit, uh, I have been in recovery from an eating disorder for over gosh, 13 years now. Um, and so, and, and I would say in a very healthy place in terms of food and, and my thinking around my body and all that sort of thing. So, when I started personal training, I, because I'm on the go and I'm constantly running from one place to another and teaching kickboxing classes and, um, leading boot camps and whatnot. Um, I was finding myself starving and eating all the time while simultaneously losing weight. And, you know, people started to comment on it. One of the trainers I work with, um, commented on it and I started to feel very 
energetically low, which I hate, which is not definitely like the, the, the last thing you want as a personal trainer. Right. So I went to the doctor to make sure that everything was fine and, um, everything was fine. And so it just became a matter of, of needing to make sure that I was eating as much as I possibly could. So that's been a little bit of a challenge, uh, to be honest, and never one that I thought that I would have. Um, it sounds like a fun problem to have, but it's really not, uh, because I have to some, somehow be able to eat enough calories, but still feel energetic, uh, enough to get through my day. So that means I can't eat cheeseburgers for every single meal. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a little bit of a challenge, but, um, I think I'm kind of on the Michael Phelps diet. I hear he eats like 12,000, 13,000 calories a day or something insane like that. So I think I'm probably not far behind him. So is that a metabolism thing? I I don't know if it's so much of a metabolism thing as it's just that there's something called the neat burn, which is what I wrote about that I think is what Gary read. Um, and that's the, the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So all the activity that we do while we're not engaged in exercise, so whether it's, you know, cleaning your house or walking to the subway or, you know, lifting, for example, in my, in my case, lifting weights to assist your clients or whatever, you're constantly burning calories. So the more you do that sort of work, like manual laborers, right, burn a, a ton of calories, the more that you're engaged in that sort of work, um, the more I think your body becomes adapted to that metabolic burn. So you could be eating a ton of food, but if your output is consistently high, you're just, your body's on fire constantly and just, you know, nuke, nuking calories all the time. Man, I wish I had that problem. <laughs> well, no, I think it's, I, I think it's a really confusing part for people. I think there's a lot to unpack here and I want to come back to NEAT um, in a second. With your experience, Jesse, and we'll, I want to talk about the psychology behind all this as well as the actual situation you found yourself in, but how do we know? I mean, I think one of the things that I find today is there's a lot of focus on calories and food and diets and obesity and that sort of stuff, but underneath all that, I think that comment you made about being energetically low how does someone balance up their food intake with their workload to know that they're on the right track? Because we hear about people gaining weight. Now you're talking about being in a situation where you are losing weight and you can lose weight and be, even in some cases today, normal and or slim, but still not be well on the inside. Where? Where's the balance of all that? Like, how do we, is, is the energy levels you're feeling, is that in your mind, one of the best measurements of how well you're traveling? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that's a really important and interesting distinction. Um, so often, especially with my female clients, um, I, as part of, as part of my training, I'll have them track their food. And so often I can tell when a client comes in, if they've eaten, uh, if they have consumed enough calories, because the the work, their output alone um, will show me this. So, uh, for example, I've got one client in particular I'm thinking of right now who for weeks she would come in and just kind of very kind of drained energetically. But I know that health wise, she's she's, you know, she's where she's at. Um, and so I started looking at her food plans and this girl was taking in between 800 and a thousand calories a day. And that's not enough to maintain anybody's 
sort of baseline activities, let alone any sort of additional uh, workout calories that she's expending. So I worked with her on that, slowly adding in, you know, healthier foods and eating more to bring her up to like, you know, I don't like to focus on calorie number, but you know, a lot consistent, uh, consistently higher than say a thousand. So more so around the 2000 mark and her workouts have improved. She has a lot more energy. She's gotten a lot stronger. She feels better, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in today's kind of diet culture and, and extreme diet culture, we're way too focused on caloric intake and less so focused on how we feel. Um, and I think we really need to get away from looking at things in terms of numbers, whether it's the number on the scale or the number of calories we're consuming. I, I really think that it should be more about how we're feeling and how we're sort of able to go about doing our daily activities. So uh, I get that's kind of a roundabout answer to your question, <laughs> but, um, I think we're at the same wavelength here. I, uh, and I guess the other part too, if you are thinking about calories, putting in an extra thousand calories into your diet because you're active, it, I guess it's, it's, it's obvious that you need to choose the right sorts of calories, isn't it? It's not just empty calories. You need, Absolutely. are you a proponent of, let's say a balanced attitude towards food for that extra thousand yes. calories for this. And I think it's interesting. Let's, let's just take this girl. Let's call her Michelle. Uh, okay. Coming to you, you can tell instantly by looking at her, her output, you look at her food diary, which I think can scare a lot of people if they actually did the, because you hear it, oh, <sighs> I eat pretty well. It's the pretty part that's all messed up. And when you actually have to <laughs> write it down, it surprises people, right? Let's say yeah, Michelle's absolutely. done that, gives you the diary, you go, look, there's just, you're not getting enough juice here, not in juices as in juices, but juice as in power out of your food to give you the energy that you require for your day of office and workout and, and socialising. If I'm a thousand calories short to use a number, what would you add in? Sure. I would tell you, first of all, I'm a big, big proponent of the kind of the 80-20 uh, uh, kind of balanced diet thinking. So 80% of your food, I think should come from, you know, lean protein, vegetables, fruits, all the good stuff that we all know that we're supposed to eat. And then I think in order for something to be sustainable over the long term, you've got to sort of have a little room for some cookies or for some wine or whatever kind of your, your sort of poison or your, your pleasure, your pleasure is. Um, so, I would certainly advise that the majority of those extra thousand calories come from, again, lean, lean protein, vegetables, fruit. But, you know, have that cookie, have two cookies. Just make sure you're not eating the whole box of cookies or drinking the whole bottle of wine, you know, it, because that's not sustainable. And over the long run, you want a, a lifestyle plan, right? You want a lifestyle plan and not sort of a, a quick um diet or, or something that's, that you're not going to be able to sustain. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people kind of get into trouble and we're all always trying to find balance. So it's, it's never perfect, but as long as, you know, over the span of a few months, it kind of balances it out, then you're, I think you're on the right track. I want to talk about NEAT, which is the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Uh, and I've been on this, this been observing this for a little while and the reason I say it and I wrote a little story on it some time back is I was loading some horses with a guy 
about a year ago. What I noticed about this guy is he didn't rush, but he did everything at pace. And he did everything with a quicker than average walk, lift a lot of stuff, and he just was very, very active. And he is lean and strong and cut to shreds, yet he does no actual training or physical fitness, but he is lean and strong and not carrying any weight. And the story I wrote is that we could do things at pace and that in itself is exercise. Talk me through your approach. I'd never seen it termed as neat before. And I think this is an area that people don't think about in terms of their day-to-day wellness or health. Because I guess, Jesse, people write about having to go to the gym or go for a walk or you have to go swim or you have to go do CrossFit. And I think these things are all great and I appreciate them all and like them all. The other side of it is that you can actually do something, can't you, as part of your normal day-to-day functional life that can be contributing to your wellness. Is that kind of where NEAT comes in? Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, and your example of the guy loading the horses, that's that's exactly right. Um, there's a big difference between somebody who sits at a desk for eight hours a day versus somebody who even, even say, uh, like a waiter or somebody who's kind of running around um, or somebody who's working in a laundromat folding clothes all day. Um, you know, there's a big, big difference. And, and you're right. I think that people don't, they kind of categorize things as either exercise or not, but the base, your baseline of activity is what NEAT is all about and is what you really kind of want to look at, you know? So if you're, you know, if you're, let's say you do have an eight hour desk job, right? If you make a habit out of even just getting up, you know, once an hour and walking around the office for five to 10 minutes or just standing, even standing burns more calories than sitting for 10 minutes out of every hour, that over time, that adds up in the course of a day. You know, that's, you're talking an additional like 300, 400 calories that you're burning just by kind of changing your, your, your mindset you know, taking the stairs rather than the elevator too is a great example. Um, and they say that New Yorkers tend to be a lot thinner than a lot of other Americans simply because of this neat factor. And I don't know that anybody's actually called it that, but there's all this research that says that New Yorkers tend to be thinner because we have to be more active. We have to take the stairs or we have to walk a few blocks to get milk or, or what have you. So, if you look at it like that, it, it makes a lot of sense. Are you a proponent of resistance training? Does that normally make up part of your program with your clients, Jessica? Yeah, definitely. Um, before I really discovered strength training, I was just a hardcore runner and I thought that I was in great shape. And then I took my first kickboxing class, which included a lot of plyometrics, a lot of strength training, a lot of kind of military style stuff. And it killed me. Like it just absolutely floored me. Um, and then I realized that I had been avoiding those sorts of, uh, uh, when you're training for a marathon, you're supposed to train, um, one or two days, uh, strength training or kind of resistance training. And I had been avoiding that for years. Um, and then once I started to include that, I realized a, I became a lot more toned and, uh, could see muscles that I didn't know I had before and also had a lot more energy and that helped me power through the runs too. So yes, answer your question. All of my training sessions now include resistance training and strength training, whether it's body weight or weighted or, 
or what have you. So you're talking stuff like push-ups and body weight squats and I guess if you're in a park, sort of chin-ups and those sorts of things. Jess, is that what you're talking? Yeah, exactly. Um, And I do a lot of plyometrics too, which is basically combining any sort of movement, like say your basic squat uh, or your basic lunge, um, combining a jump with it. So turning a squat into a jump squat or turning a a lunge into a jump lunge. Um, This adds a lot of power, burns a lot of calories, makes you a lot stronger very efficiently. So a lot of that sort of work. My favourite time of the week is 7 o'clock on Wednesday morning at my local gym when I do the, the, their boxing class. What oh, a, yeah. Nice. What am I missing out on? I mean, I love it. It's my, as I said, it's my favourite time of the week. What am I missing out on if I'm not doing kickboxing, if I'm just doing boxing? What sort of things am I missing out on? The kickboxing classes that I take, that I teach rather, um, it's cardio kickboxing. So it's not, you know, you're not hand-to-hand combat with an individual, you're fighting a heavy bag. So we do a lot of um, high-intensity training as well as traditional sort of boxing moves. So if you've got, if your boxing, if your boxing class includes push-ups, sit-ups, some sprints, some jump rope, if it includes all those things, it's probably pretty good and it's probably targeting most muscle groups. Let's turn to the psychology part. You've said or you've written about before, you said, in order to start living authentically as the best possible version of yourself, it is necessary, imperative actually, to start looking at the stories you tell yourself. And I'm interested from a psychology perspective, what that means. Like, what are the stories we tell ourselves, Jesse? Oh, it's so true. Um, Wow. Yeah. Classic sort of example of that that is springing to mind for me right now is we just had the holidays and um, for me, and I think for a lot of people, the holidays can bring up a lot of anxieties. You're seeing family that you often don't see. And depending on your relationships with different individuals, there can be a lot of dynamics at play. I know there certainly are in my family. Um, so this year I decided to rather, rather than go into it sort of fearing for the worst and, you know, clenching every muscle in my body, I decided to change my outlook on it and just experience rather than to expect. Because when we, when we expect things, we set ourselves up for failure. So, um, and as a result of that cognitive switch, literally just a a change in how I was choosing to view the situation, I had a wonderful holiday, probably the best one I've had in years. Um, So I think, I think so much of life and how we experience it is all in the framing of it. Um, You know, we can choose to be irritated that we missed the subway or we can be happy that we missed that particular subway because that gives us an opportunity to read an extra chapter in our book or whatever. So um, I believe that to some degree it's, it's really important to choose the lens that you're viewing your life through. Because, you know, as far as I know, we only get one and I I know I want to live mine as happily as possible. So um, I think it's really all in the reframe and and kind of choosing to see the positive rather than the negative. And that's that's basically the whole basis of positive psychology, um, which I'm a big fan of. So what's the biggest psychological hurdle that you think people will face this year that they need to get right, Jesse? So people, we're, we're at the start of 2017. People may or may not have made resolutions or promises or said something, a story to themselves in their mind about this year and how it will unfold. 
What do you think is the biggest psychological hurdle from your studies that you've done and your observations of working with people? And and what should we be aware of? Like, what is the biggest hurdle and what should we be aware of? Uh, the biggest hurdle, I, I think, always is fear. And especially here in America. Well, I, I don't know, but I as an American with the, our newly elected president, um, there's a tremendous amount of fear here. Um, and maybe not all unfounded. Right. But I think our approach to that fear is kind of the biggest hurdle that we face. Um, so how do we get over that? I, I I don't know, (laughs) to be honest, I don't know what the answer is. I think, it's kind of a combination of staying in the moment and being present, um, recognizing that that where we are right now is totally fine and that we're all safe right now. Um, and to, again, just experience rather than to expect and to stop labeling things as, as negative or as positive even and just experience them as they are, I guess, would be the the biggest thing I would say. But I I think that fear is always kind of a a driving factor in society and in in my line of work, whether it's with addiction and recovery or in personal training, um, fear is what really holds us back ultimately, regardless of what we're the contextually dealing with. How, how does Jesse deal with your own voice of fear? How do I deal with it? I face yeah. it head on. <laughs> um, I, I do. I, I try to face it head on as much as possible. Um, I also, I meditate a lot. I try to keep my own sort of self care as, as high as I can. And I also try to be as gentle with myself as possible. Um, I definitely suffer from, perfectionism. And that's by no way in, in no way a compliment. It's held me back in a lot of ways, I think in my life. Um, and so I, I try to laugh. I think that laughter is so important and being soft with yourself. And I think of that old saying, you know, how you treat yourself is a reflection of how you treat others or rather I got that wrong. How you treat others is a reflection of, is of, of how you treat yourself is so true. If you're being super hard on yourself, that's going to bleed out and you're going to treat others around you in that way as well. So, um, you know, I think it's important to laugh. I think it's important to remember that this is all a comedy of sorts Um, and to just have fun and relax and chill and work hard and be a good person. Uh, I read that. It hasn't always been like this for you. And I, I saw a story that said that some three years ago you had a battle with alcoholism. Yes. H- how does that happen, Jesse? I mean, you're a beautiful woman. You seem to have everything in your favour. How does how does that happen? Like what, what were the triggers that put you in that place? Yeah, so I've been sober for about three and a half years now. Um, and thank you for the compliments. Uh yeah, everything always looks good from the outside, right? Um, but for me, for a very long time, it was not so great. And everything that I have now in my life is a direct result of my sobriety. Um, so I'll, I'll try to make this as quick as possible. But for me, uh, 
growing up, I was a child actor from the age of about 10 to 25. And um, I moved to New York City at the age of 18 and was auditioning for things and did some soap operas, did a whole lot of regional theater, some commercials, a little bit of everything. Um, And then uh, at around the age of, I think, 24, I decided to move to L.A. um, to kind of in the hopes of taking my career to the next level. Moved out to L.A. I hated it. Um, I was very kind of disillusioned, became disillusioned with the whole industry. Um, it was not, it was no longer fun for me. And I realized that I no longer wanted to be an actor. Um, but I didn't have a backup plan and, um, acting had sort of been my identity since the age of 10. So I got really kind of lost for a while in my I would say mid to late twenties. And I tried all sorts of different jobs. I was a real estate agent. I was a bartender. I was a promotional model. Uh, I did everything under the sun to kind of try to figure out who I was and what I liked because I really didn't know what else I liked other than acting because it was all I had ever done. Um, And so um, I'd never really like I, I was always a, a really good kid and a straight A student in school and never really drank until I got to college. And, um, you know, it started out kind of innocently enough. It was a lot of fun and I was kind of became this kind of party girl. Um, but it would, did not become problematic until all of this other stuff sort of, um, came up for me, all of the, uh, all of the identity questioning and all of the insecurities around that. Um, I found myself drinking more and more. I also kind of subconsciously or consciously put myself in career situations that would enable me to drink a lot. So, you know, with real estate, it's, it's very, um, quite okay to take your clients out for drinks and I would do so at Liberty. Um, and with sort of the other industries that I was involved in drinking was kind of very normalized and especially in New York city, it's, it's a huge drinking culture. Um, so I kind of evaded any sort of, um, negative feelings about it and never really questioned it until things kind of got unmanageable in my life. And, um, I ended up married to a, a very strange man that I had no business being married to and was just very, uh, very, very kind of unhappy in my life. Uh, and I, but through all of this, so anyway, so let's talk out of the dark and into the light a little bit. Um, I had decided that I wanted to start taking some classes in psychology. I'd always had an interest in it. Um, I majored in theater in undergrad, but also minored in philosophy and got a little taste of psychology through that. And so I decided that I was going to start taking some courses in psychology. And if I liked it, I thought I might apply for a master's in it. So I started to take these courses. I loved it. I I felt very passionate about it. Um, It was sort of an aha moment, like this is what I'm supposed to be doing in some way or another. And um, I, I took enough prerequisites to apply for the master's degree. I applied and got in. And then, um, kind of that summer that I found out that I got in, I was 29 and living in Brooklyn and kind of falling on and off the wagon with drinking. Like by that point I had, I knew that I had a problem with it. Um, but I wasn't sure I was kind of, wasn't sure if I wanted to totally stay on the wagon or not. So, um, 
once I got into grad school, I knew that there was no way that I was going to be able to continue drinking the way that I had been drinking and get through grad school at the same time. So grad school was a great catalyst for me in terms of getting sober. And once I started to do that and started to build self-confidence again and found real passions to kind of replace the passion that acting once held for me, um, it was relatively easy to maintain that sobriety. Um, so that's kind of the, the long and the short of it. So it's been three and a half years now. And, and like I said, I, I would not, not change any, any of it. It was, it's been an amazing journey and I, I look forward to more of it. At the back end of all that, it seems in looking at your blogs and the work you're doing, would it be fair to say that your being of service to others has helped you overcome your addiction? Absolutely. A thousand percent. Yeah. That's the other thing that, um, alcohol kind of does is it keeps you in yourself, at least for me, it keeps you in yourself. It keeps you kind of very tied up in your own ego. And again, the own, the stories that you tell yourself, um, and getting out there and helping others get you out of yourself, uh, which is so important, uh, for me in particular. And, um, yeah, and it's definitely helped to keep me sober. So, you know, whether I'm working with a client in recovery or I'm working with a client on this end in PT, it's just, I'm a people person and I love working with people and it definitely helps me and probably helps me more than it helps them. I don't know, but it works. In your line of work at the top of the show, you talked about how you could be doing two or three classes, writing, running between jobs, your fitness modeling. So you've got a couple of big days, so you've got them back to back. When, when you start to feel overwhelmed, what's your go-to? What happens then? Uh, meditation. And yeah, that's, it's not an infrequent occurrence for me to feel overwhelmed. Um, even though the things that I'm doing that I'm surrounding myself with now, I absolutely love every single piece of it. I could not be happier with what I'm doing right now. Um, but it, it is a lot of running around and I'm somebody that I think I'm, I think I'm an extroverted introvert. So while I love people, I also really need my own downtime and my own space. Um, and when I'm running from place to place to place and engaging with multiple people per day and wearing a lot of different hats, it does get very draining for me. So I recharge as much as I can with meditation, even if I'm on the subway and I only have 10 minutes. Um, and then I try to really try to prioritize sleep, which is not always easy, but um, I really try to because that's it always recharges and it's it's definitely in my line of work uh, something that you need. So sleep and meditation. Do you are you a journaler? You know I used to be and I have an entire chest filled with journals from the age of I think six. Um, but I think I do the vast majority of my journaling now. I channel it into my blog pieces. So. Um, but that's interesting that you bring it up because my entire first year and a half of sobriety, I actually kept a uh, recovery, an online recovery journal under a pseudonym. And I made sure that I wrote in it every single day. And that was a major part of my recovery. Um, so, yeah, I guess I am. It's the beginning of 2017. If there's someone out there who's listening to this show who's made the same decision as you did three and a half years ago to get themselves sober, what's the best bit of advice you could give them? Uh, talk about it. Be, be open with yourself about it. 
uh, find somebody else who has gone through the same struggle as you have, because there are so many of us. And don't be afraid to share your story, because not only will you be helping yourself, but you'll be helping them as well. Um, so just reach out to somebody. Most of us who are in recovery are more than willing to talk to anybody who's struggling. So I think that would be my, my biggest piece of advice. You're not alone. (laughs) There are, there are millions of us around the world. Yes. There's more than enough people out there to talk, find someone to talk to, isn't there? (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Let's, let's continue that line of thinking. Uh, there is, say we talk about Michelle, Michelle works in the corporate environment, does spend eight to nine hours a day sitting in front of a computer tapping. Uh, Michelle knows that her, she's energetically low, to use your term. Yes, she knows she should do something. She's got these barriers, these psychological barriers in her mind. However, Michelle's made the decision that 2017, I've had enough. I need to do something about this. Michelle comes to see you in New Jersey and says, this is the year I want to do something about this. What's the first step? Talk me through the first step that Michelle needs to take to make this year outstanding. Sure. Uh, I would say quite simply, just do it. If you want to do it, just stop all the noise in your head that's telling you you can't do it, that's telling you you're not good enough to do it, and just start doing it. It's a it's a day by day. Life is a day by day thing. Put in, you know, whether it's making sure that you eat that next snack, that next healthy snack, or making sure that you make that that workout or get enough sleep or whatever, just do it and take it step by step. Um you know, do, do the next right thing that's right in front of you. And over time, you will eventually achieve your goals. Nike had it so right, didn't they, really? They really did. And <laughs> yeah. I'm totally stealing from Nike, but they got it. They nailed it, yeah. <laughs> they really did. Just do it. Turn the noise off and just do it. If we go through some specifics, Jesse, you talked about your next snack. And so let's say that's actionable. The next snack that any of us have is going to be 80-20. You talked about earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. The next part someone could do is to get a standing desk or make sure that a part of their day is standing as opposed to sitting at their computer. Sure. The other thing you talked about was every hour set your watch or your alarm clock or your phone to go off on the hour, get up, go for a walk around the office, make a cup of coffee. You talked about taking the stairs, not the elevator, walking an extra couple of blocks to lunch. Mm-hmm. Because I think people – People need to have it broken down to have these actionable things they can do, don't they? I mean, they need to have these yes. things to almost check off to say, I could do that. And then it comes down to, as you said before, the story they tell themselves and the choices. Would that would that be the sort of thing you'd be, you'd be suggesting to Michelle? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you've got to first think about these things and then you it, it helps to kind of really look at your routine and say, for example, oh, maybe I spend two hours in front of the TV each night. Okay, well, that's fine. But how could you make those two hours maybe a little healthier, per se? Maybe you get a stability ball and you do some crunches during every commercial break. Or, you know, maybe you get up every half an hour and do 50 jumping jacks. You know, there's definitely having a plan and having uh, these small attainable goals 
definitely works wonders over the long run, plus increases self-esteem and one's um, sort of sense of self-actualization. So yes, definitely. Having a plan of attack and breaking it down into small goals is, I would say, imperative. Now, before I hand you to Robbo for the big question of the interview, because <laughs> all I'm doing is I'm just dancing around the ring. You notice I've been jabbing and I've been shuffling a little bit, trying to get you on the ropes <laughs> before Robbo comes in with the big question. But one, one, <laughs> one last uh, question for you, Jesse, is can you think of something in your world that you want that you don't have yet? Yeah, actually, uh, I would love, and I guess this is a, a goal for the future, I would love to be able to work from anywhere. Um, I would love to be either bi-coastal and be able to support myself kind of half the year in Los Angeles Um or an, an even greater goal than that is to literally be able to work from anywhere. I love to travel. It's something I prioritize. And if I could somehow make money every time I want to go on a trip, that would be awesome. That would definitely be amazing. It's it's so fascinating, Jesse, because through we've been doing the show now for a number of years and we have been following a number of trends or occurrences that are commonalities. And one of the things we're finding, and we haven't had the term bicoastal. I mean, I think that's that's definitely going on the uh, studio wall. Love that, <laughs> love that term. But um, <laughs> the people are more and more wanting to be digital nomads and yes. work from anywhere and build a lifestyle as opposed to having a career with life jammed in the end of it. So, I um, I love that whole notion. I love that word. You know, bicoastal. I think that's great. The other one I love was energetically low. So a couple of couple of crackers to take out of the show, but a couple of bits <laughs> of gold there, Jesse. Thank you, um, <laughs> Robbo. Are you sufficiently ready to go? I'm sufficiently caffeinated for a nifty ninety. I think. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay. Robbo's nifty ninety. All right, here we go. Let's start the clock. What's your favourite outdoor activity? Uh, hiking. Finish this sentence. I never get tired of... Reading. What's your favourite naughty treat? Ooh, uh, icing directly out of the jar. <laughs> Classic. That's cool. If you could get a plane ticket to anywhere in the world, where would you go? Uh, Fiji. Favourite TV show? Let's go with Stranger Things. Give me three words that describe yourself. Energetic, passionate... Strong-willed. Favourite sports team? I don't really have one, but if I had to pick, I guess I'd go with the Yankees. What's your greatest achievement to date? My sobriety. And the big question, if you're out of bed in the morning, the mojo wasn't pumping, what's the song that goes on the headphones to get Jesse Barton moving in the morning? Ooh, um, anything by the Black Keys. Nice. We've never, we've never had a Black Keys uh, response before. That's cool. No, absolutely. <laughs> and there you go. You've survived Robbo's Nifty 90. It wasn't that bad, was it? Woo! No, it's just anxiety provoking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to go meditate now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Jesse, this has been a delight. You're so lovely to talk to. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for sharing with us, and especially doing it on your birthday. It's just uh, super cool for us. We really have... Loved having you all the way from New York on the uh, on the line and uh, your story. And I think it really makes a difference for people to sit down and just at this time of the year 
just recalibrate, re-engage, reconnect and uh, and get after it. So um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. Thank you so much. This has been really awesome and, and a wonderful way to spend my birthday. So thank you so much. I'm Anna Devena. I'm also known as the Sleep Muse. I help people get a great night's sleep. And often when people are struggling with sleep, I suggest that they listen to the Mojo radio show. And when they do, they fall asleep instantly. You know, I have a lot of admiration for these people who can study and take up some sort of profession and maintain a career as a professional sports person. It must be so much work. Well, it is. No doubt. There's no doubt it is. I think what really is going to surprise people is that Jessie's... When you look at Jessie's world through Instagram, her blogs, her website, it all looks and sounds pretty cool. Then when you dig only a number of years ago, three years ago, in fact, uh, with the battle she had with alcoholism and suddenly how that changes the perspective we have is that Jessie, although right now is beautifully fit and healthy and life's great, we all have our battles and Jessie's been through that and come out the other side and now is inspiring people. And um, I think there's a lot in that interview for people to be grateful for. Speaking of gratitude, I've got a, a nice little quick one for you this week. I um, yep. had a note slipped under the door from one of our listeners who'd taken some inspiration from our first couple of shows this year about kicking off 2017 in the right way. And they passed on a little tip. They've organised themselves a big jar, if you imagine like a big cookie jar or a big coffee jar or something like that. Once a week they're sitting down and they're writing on a piece of paper something that they're grateful for from that week. So a bit like gratitude journaling, but they're just doing it once a week. One thing that they've taken out of their week that they're grateful for. What they intend to do is sit down at the end of the year, take out all those notes, have a look through them and see if there's some sort of thread or some sort of similarity in what they've written down. And they're actually going to figure out what they're grateful for for the whole of 2017. I thought that was a really nice idea. Nice idea. Slipped under the door. Yeah. New segment. A new segment under the door. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bullet. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Ladies and gentlemen. Now, you may be wondering... Why we've suddenly gone country. You've got your chaps on again this week, don't you? I do. I read a story during the week which really has moved me. I, I'm i a fan of bull riding and the Professional Bull Riding Association, the PBR in America, is the mecca. It's the World Championships. And it's a series. It ends up in the World Championships in uh, Las Vegas. And I've been a fan for 10 years. It inspired me to try bull riding a number of times. I love it as a sport. And... I was very saddened this week when I learned that a guy called Ty Pozabon, who's a young 25-year-old Canadian bull rider, uh, had died. Now, what the reason that I have brought this up is because he was a great young cowboy and he died from suicide. What is most curious about this story that I, I think we all should just consider is that it seems that the suicide was caused by concussion. And he suffered multiple concussions in the bull riding ring over the years. And because of that and the brain damage that concussion causes, that then can lead to severe depression. Now, Dr. Charles Tator is now issued a warning, and he's a neurosurgeon, that post-concussion syndrome is a, is a thing. 
And depression is very common in this post-concussion syndrome. And it probably occurs in up to 40% of people who have been concussed are suffering from this. Now, psychologists and psychiatrists and all sort of stuff can be very, very helpful. But what we need to think about is that after concussion, we suffer sadness. And the sadness is actually caused because of the brain damage, the brain injury. But that message hasn't sunken in to all of us yet. Now, why I thought, I hadn't heard that message talked about and framed this way, that if that depression anxiety is severe enough, that can end up in young Ty, 25 years old. I mean, the kid was still moving forward according to his family. He was making plans, making plans to catch up people for coffee. He was signing contracts. But underneath all that was this severe depression that they are now saying came from multiple concussions time and time again. So I hadn't heard that talked about with concussion. And given the fact that Dr. Daniel Arman, who we have spoken about on the show with brain experts, has got 100,000 different brain scans, the biggest library of brain scans in the world. And he said that every single NFL player has brain damage because of the concussion caused by helmets clashing together. And I think as parents, we should keep this in mind for our children and, and our mates. But if you do hear of somebody going through a concussion, that can then end up in sadness and anxiety and in some cases depression. And it's not just because of depression and anxiety, it's because of the concussions. And we've done some really good shows, haven't we, mate, on like Just One Wave with Joel Pilgrim. And we've talked to Glenn Capelli very early on the show about the Are You OK campaign where... I just think that if a mate or a friend or a family member has gone through concussion, we need to be very, very diligent in saying, mate, you okay? Absolutely. A good friend of ours is going through a depression at the moment and watching his journey is uh, very sobering, I can tell you that much. Yeah, so uh, Ty, rest in peace, brother. Yeah, that's very sad. Good ride, cowboy. The Mojo Radio Show. To finish us up, a little, a little sum-sum that Jessie mentioned in her interview, which I reflected upon. I want to play you something. Jessie talked about it's not what happens, but it's how you front up to it. It's how you then approach it. We had a couple of weeks ago, we had a very, very popular show with a Navy SEAL called Andrew Paul, which has gone on to be one of our most popular shows. And, if, and honestly, that is an absolute must listen to to set you up for this year. One of Andrew's good mates is a guy called Jocko Willinks, and Jocko has one of the most popular podcasts in the world uh, called the Jocko Willinks Podcast. And Jocko has this piece that he put together with his producer, Echo Charles, and it's all about how you look at things. One of my direct subordinates, one of my guys that worked for me, he would, he would call me up or pull me aside with some major problem, some issue that was going on. And he'd say, boss, we got this and that and the other thing. And I'd look at him and I'd say, good. And finally one day he was telling me about some issue that he was having, some problem. And he said, I already know what you're going to say. And I said, well, what am I going to say? He said, you're going to say good. He said, that's what you always say. When something is wrong and going bad, you always just look at me and say good. And I said, well, yeah. When things are going bad, there's going to be some good that's going to come from it. Didn't get the new high-speed gear we wanted? Good. Didn't get promoted? Good. More time to get better. 
Oh, mission got canceled? Good, we can focus on the other one. Didn't get funded. Didn't get the job you wanted. Got injured. Sprained my ankle. Got tapped out? Good. Got beat? Good. You learned. Unexpected problems? Good. We have the opportunity to figure out a solution. That's it. When things are going bad, don't get all bummed out, don't get startled, don't get frustrated. If you can say the word good, guess what? It means you're still alive. It means you're still breathing. And if you're still breathing, well then hell, you still got some fight left in you. So get up, dust off, reload, recalibrate, re-engage, and go out on the attack. That will come in very handy on a Thursday night at Pennant Hills Oval. Well, I've got to say, that piece has had quite an impact on me personally. Mm. is that even yesterday it was 36 degrees outside and you go, oh, it's too hot. But then you go, well, it's hot outside. That's going to be a really good workout. That's going to make me appreciate the cool times. Good. Let's go. And I think the same thing with children. I mean, I know when I'm, when I'm coaching the kids and it's pouring outside and they say, oh, I won't go outside. And I say, it's raining. I say, good. Well, why is it good? Well, look around. No one else is training. If you're training, you're getting ahead. It's good. And what happens is after a while, the kids start repeating it back to you. So I think it'd be very, very valuable for you to do that at training with the boys. Absolutely. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Oh, nice. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. All right, pop quiz, hot shot. My turn this week. Oh, this is not going to be pretty. All right, here we go. This ain't a song for the brokenhearted. No silent prayer for faith departed. I ain't going to be just a face in the crowd. Going to live my life, shout it out loud. I got it. Ah. It's my life, it's now or never. <laughs> I ain't gonna live forever. No one uh, asked you Bon to Jovi? Yeah. It's my life. It's my life. <laughs> so close. <laughs> you had it there. I thought uh, you were on it. I'm sorry for the singing, folks, but uh, I'm all jacked up a man, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, that's all right. We can, we can live with that. Listen, the reason I wanted to talk about this song was I thought it sort of related nicely to what we're talking about in terms of getting ready for this year. Um, John Bon Jovi had, when he was writing the song, wrote it very much about himself. It's very, it's a very personal song. He was, he dabbled in acting, and he was, and he was also obviously a massive worldwide rock and roll star, and was struggling with the fact of, you know, how do I do this? Do I do it? Whatever. And his decision was, it's my life. I'm going to live it my way. So the interesting thing about this is, what for me was when when Bon Jovi was writing the song, he was a very personal song. He was writing about himself. He'd been dabbling in acting, and he obviously had a massive career as a, a rock and roll icon. And he was struggling with the fact that people were telling him that he could only concentrate on one thing, or he had to make up his mind which one he was going to do. And in the end, his decision was exactly as the song says: "You know what? It's my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do it the best that I can." And that's where the lyric came from. To begin with, he also makes reference to Frank Sinatra in the song. Um, like Frankie said, I'll do it my way. And he was also inspired by the death of Frank Sinatra. And there was a whole bunch of arguments that went along with that, including Frank Sinatra in the song with the rest of the band as well. But the reason that I was inspired by this 
was that he he very much found that although the song was very much written about him, what's inspired him about the song is that people have very much taken it upon themselves. They've become Frankie. And he's he's been inspired by the way that people have picked up the song and made it their own, taken it very much to heart. I just got a little quick grab here of him talking about let's have a quick listen to that. It was about me wanting to be in movies and music at the same time. When you write a song like that and it hits that nerve, you don't know where it comes from or why, but if it comes from that pure place, chances are it's going to hit that pure place for someone else. So I reckon John Bon Jovi's nailed it there. There's a Frankie in all of us, and in 2017 we should all be doing it our own way. We're out. This ain't a song for the broken hearted. Smile!